Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Professor Dr. Christian Bush is the best-selling author of The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Ariana Huffington calls it a wise, exciting, and life-changing book that Paul Pullman says provides excellent practical guidance for all. A few years ago, I had gotten the idea to write a book titled The Wisdom of Not Planning. In researching the space, I came across his book and realized Christian had already written that book. It is one of my favorite strategy texts, and we're thrilled for the chance to hear Christian share some of its jewels with us firsthand. Christian is an internationally known expert in the areas of innovation, purpose-driven leadership, and serendipity. He is the director of the CGA Global Economy Program at NYU and also teaches at the London School of Economics. He is the co-founder of Leaders on Purpose and the Sandbox Network and a former director of LSE's Innovation Lab. His work has been featured by outlets such as the Strategic Management Journal, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, The Guardian, Washington Post, and the BBC. He is a member of the World Economic Forum's Expert Forum, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and on the Thinkers 50 radar list of the 30 thinkers most likely to shape the future of management thinking. In this podcast, he argues that luck or serendipity is not random, but can actually be cultivated. He describes some of the specific characteristics and practices of organizations that are able to turn unexpected events, trends, market developments into opportunities. And he offers some really practical ways you can start generating more luck right now for yourself, for your life, and for your organization. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Christian Bush. Christian, thank you so much for taking some time to be here with us. It is great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to get into what you study and write and call it luck or serendipity and optionality and strategies, but you really bring it back to strategy. So I'd like to ask you what your definition of strategy is. I grew up in Germany, so we love having a plan of action, having a particular idea of where we're going and then somehow map this out. And so to me, strategy has always been about how do you essentially have something that allows you to know where you're going, how you're going there, that maps that out. But as we'll talk about a lot of the work we're doing is around saying how do we reframe that a little bit away from the quote-unquote rigid methodological to the more compass oriented allowing for the unexpected on the way to happen as well great can you just give us a little bit about your journey how did you land on this topic of strategy well, I grew up in Heidelberg in Germany, you know, where Goethe and Schiller wrote their poems, beautiful, romantic, highly recommended for those of you who want to have a romantic trip somewhere. And so I grew up there. I was kicked out of high school, had to repeat a year, probably held the unofficial world record of how many dustbins and trash cans you can knock over on your way to school when you're driving. <laughs> and then one day I wasn't so lucky anymore and smashed into four parked cars, all cars completely destroyed, including my own. And I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and he was like, oh my God, he's still alive. And so this idea that I was supposed to be dead, that idea that you know, supposedly I shouldn't have survived, that stuck with me. 
and ask myself all these weird questions. If I would have been killed, who would have come to my funeral? Who would have actually cared? Was it all worth it? And, you know, at that point, I only had depressing answers. And it took me on this intense search for meaning, trying to figure out what is this all about. And I started reading an amazing book, highly recommended, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. That's all about the question, how do we find meaning, you know, in the toughest of circumstances? And what I realized is, hey, what gives me a lot of meaning is trying to understand how to connect things, connect people, connect ideas, like seeing how they all connect with each other. And so started out in entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, and then later went more into academia and then kind of studied a lot, you know, what makes businesses, what makes individuals successful. And there's the kind of intersection with strategy and then also with this whole idea of how do we live a meaningful and purposeful life, but then also we integrate an organization. So how do we integrate profit and purpose at scale in the companies we run and what's the role of strategy in that? Interesting. If you can just explain to me, so I understand the interesting topic, but what were you doing that you started thinking about this? Were you a student? Were you an entrepreneur? Were you a professor already? I started out, our first company was a company that brought together young innovators from around the world uh, called Sandbox. And so the idea was usually when you're pushing the boundaries, when you're innovating in a particular field, you know people within your own field. But what's actually really interesting is connecting people with other fields who are similarly pushing the boundaries, who are similarly crazy as you are. And so we said, why don't we bring those together, build an incubator, a community around them that helps them make ideas happen. And what happens when you would go to a dinner around the world in different locations, people would constantly say, oh my God, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence. And so I got really fascinated by that question. Can you accelerate this? Can you accelerate these positive coincidences here? Can you accelerate this serendipity? And so that was first like a personal interest. And, you know, it popped up from time to time in my own life. But then I started in academia. We were co-running an innovation center at the LSE. London School of Economics. And that's been all about how do we build businesses that are fit for the future? do research around it. And again, what happened is that out of the research came, look, all these companies, all these people, they're trying to plan everything. They're trying to map everything. They try to like have control over everything. And then the unexpected happens, right? And then they scramble and say, oh my God, what do we do next? And so the excitement was really to say, is there a muscle we can build around this? Is there a muscle we can build for the unexpected that both allows us to make accidents more meaningful? but also to create more meaningful accidents. And that's really what cultivating serendipity is about. It's about saying, yes, let's strategize as much as we can. Let's build our plans and maps. But at the same time, let's build a muscle that allows us to see the unexpected, not as a threat, not as something that just kind of happens to us, but something we can do something with it. And to give you an example, right? So there's an amazing company I've been working with in China called Hire. They produce refrigerators, washing machines, and so on. And they always had the idea, look, we're building washing machines. And usually that's for clothes, right? So that was the assumption. That's the plan. Now, they got calls from farmers and the farmers said, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. So they asked them, why is it breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it and it doesn't seem to work. And so, you know, what would we usually do? We'll probably say, well, that's not part of the plan. Let's, quote unquote, educate the customer that they shouldn't wash their potatoes in the washing machine. Instead, they should wash their clothes. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. But there's probably a lot of farmers in China who have a similar problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And that's how unexpectedly so the potato washing machine became one of their projects and products. And kind of that's what a lot of our research shows that the most successful CEOs, the most successful chief strategy officers and others, they're extremely good at saying, here's where we're going as a North Star. Here's a sense of direction. But now we make it part of the plan that the unexpected will happen. And that's not threatening our authority. That becomes part of the plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So then walk us through then, what are some of the barriers that you found you need to address in order to be able to see those opportunities and adapt to them and be open to them? 
I would imagine that there's even what I've read a little bit on theories or studies of luck is that it's not that you see the opportunities and then decide not to move on them, but sometimes you don't even see them. Can you talk to us? What are the major barriers? Absolutely. And those barriers are both on the level of the individual and of the company. On the level of the individual, you know, to your point, I think a lot of times what's interesting is because we don't expect the positively unexpected to be there, we tend to not see it. And there's amazing experiments around this. And I think you alluded to this. One experiment, for example, they took people who self-identify as very lucky. So people who say, good things tend to happen to me, yada, yada. And people who self-identify as very unlucky. So people who say, bad things tend to happen to me, I'm always in accidents and so on. And they tell them, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, grab a coffee, sit down, and then we'll have our conversation. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras alongside the street and inside the coffee shop. There's a five pound note, so money in front of the coffee shop door. And inside the coffee shop, there's one empty seat next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big dreams happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the coffee shop, orders a coffee, sits down, has a conversation with the businessman, they exchange business cards, potential opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that part. Now, the unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, that's it. At the end of the day, they ask both people, how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. I found money in the street, made a new friend, and you know, potentially an opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And one of the key elements here is the second one, you know, there's a lot around actually connecting with people and so on. We can talk about the kind of benefit that extroversion can bring. But, you know, for closet introverts like myself, there's a lot of kind of hope in that a lot of times those lucky moments come out of quiet, calm sources, finding something in the street, looking at a book and thinking, oh my God, like this could be a podcast, taking another way to work one day and looking in the bookstore and thinking, oh my God, this could be a movie. So the point here is that a lot of times one thing that holds us back from having more of this is that we don't believe it's there. And so we don't open our eyes to it. So that's really the kind of alertness piece and really that kind of open your mind to it. But I think what's really interesting, we'll probably talk more about this also in the organizational context, how often we disincentivize people to actually look out for the positively unexpected in our companies, even though we all know that innovation has to come from all parts of the company, right? It's not enough to just have a department that says, yay, we do R&D and that's it. No, it needs to come from everywhere. And so I'm a big fan actually of incentivizing people in the day-to-day to look out for the unexpected and make it part of the plan. So for example, in the weekly meeting asking things like, what surprised you last week? What you're doing here is that then someone might say in the meeting, it surprised me that, you know, customers used our products very differently. And then you might be like, oh, great. I just legitimized the idea that the unexpected is not threatening our marketing plan, our bigger picture strategy, but actually that it helps us to operate effectively. And that's actually something kind of we just finished a study with over 40 of the top CEOs in the world of big companies that try to, you know, become future fit companies like MasterCard and others who have been performing pretty well, but now say now is the next stage of becoming more purpose driven and so on. And one thing that they've been extremely good and what all these leaders have in common is that they're extremely good at saying, this is the sense of direction we're having. This is a broader purpose. In the case of MasterCard, let's bring 500 million people into the financial system, things like this. Here's an approximate strategy. But let me tell you already now that we need everyone to chip in here because the strategy might adjust and that's not threatening the CEO. That's actually part of the plan. And that's what the sign of a good culture becomes. Got it. So we have cultural drivers, we have incentives. Are there other organizational leverage points that you also see, like maybe structural systems, other things that organizations should be looking at to embed and activate the serendipity mindset? 
Yeah, I think what happens a lot of times is, you know, companies focus a lot on values and yay, our value is creativity and playfulness and so on. But it doesn't really show in organizational processes. It doesn't really show in how the company is set up, right? So the performance review still focuses maybe then on sales or the promotion still focuses on who sold the most stuff versus who actually lived up to the things that we are promising in our speeches. And so there's always this disconnect that we've seen in our work between what we're saying, our purposes and our values is. And then if I, as an employee, come into the office on Monday morning, what do I feel about this? How does it represent itself and how does it manifest in my day-to-day life? And so I'm a big fan of really integrating this into every process, every structure. So performance reviews. If you really want to be innovative, if you really want to focus on allowing for serendipity to emerge, then in the performance review, there have to be questions around what is it that surprised you and incentivizing people to really look out for it and rewarding that, right? Celebrating those people, celebrating that in the weekly newsletter, you name it. But then also the way we promote people. Do we promote people only based on those kind of traditional things? Or do we think about how do we promote those who created positively unexpected things in our organization? And I'm a big fan, actually, a lot of times also to really showcase that as a leader. We all have the CV problem, right? The CV problem is essentially, imagine you go to a new employer and you talk about your CV, you will always tell it linear, right? You will say, first I did this, then I did this, then I did this. And that's how we talk a lot about strategy, right? When you're a CSO or CEO, you go into the board meeting and you say, this is what we planned, this is what we did, and then this is exactly what came out of it, and we always knew it, and this is great, right? But that's not how life is, and we all know it, right? We all know that that's essentially a lie. And so a lot of what we try to do with this work is to say, no, let's legitimize this. If I'm a leader, let's go into the board meeting and say, this was the plan. Then we created a culture that allowed for the unexpected to be nurtured and to be integrated. Then something different came out of it, but that is part of the plan that we were not following only the plan. Then you legitimize people across the company to say, oh, great, I don't have to pretend we have it all figured out. And I think kind of to me, that comes to a bigger corporate culture question of, do we allow people to, in a way, manifest in their own life and communicate the reality of how things work or how we would love them to work, but it's just an illusion of control? Yeah, I can see there being a psychological driver there, but also like an institutional driver, I would think. Like, you know, you have to report your earnings and you're judged on how accurate you can hit your earnings. So maybe it's better to have no luck than to have good luck if your goal is just to be consistent and predictable. Well, it's interesting because if you think about it that way, that was one of the interesting learnings also from COVID, right? That I think a lot of times we assume that serendipity and so on is the positively nice, unexpected, like a nice innovation or so, right? Like the potato washing machine. But if you are a brewery during COVID and you sold to restaurants and now those restaurants are bankrupt and you can't sell your alcohol and you don't then realize, oh my God, I can use that alcohol to produce hand sanitizer, then you go bankrupt. And so it's the kind of idea that a lot of times serendipity actually comes out of necessity. It comes out of of those situations where you might not have the luxury to just say, I will not build that into the plan. And so I think that's actually something kind of, I've been fascinated, especially in large companies. That kind of idea that we have to stick to the plan is something that, to your point, right, it portrays authority, portrays the idea that we're reliable and dependable. But actually, a lot of times it does the opposite in the end, because we now have an incentive to hide numbers, to somehow try to figure out how we can tweak the budgets to still look good, right? And so actually, from a performance perspective, we actually a lot of times do the opposite. And to give you an example, maybe can to bring that point home, I remember when COVID happened. 
And those different states, governors and others who had the power in different US states, you saw very different leadership styles, right? The old school leadership style that a lot of companies also follow is to say, okay, COVID happens. We close down the state for XYZ month. Here's an exact timeline. And then exactly on March 15th or whatever it is, we open up again. This is the exact timeline. Now, the new type of leadership style that follows from that serendipity mindset is to say, okay, we have two basic principles, public health and economic health. So that's our principles that our North Star. Here's an approximate time. But we're telling you already now that as soon as new information comes in, we will adjust that timeline. And that is part of the plan. And so now what's happening is that in the example number one, if you have a COVID cluster, new information comes in, you have an incentive to either hide the data to avoid the data. Or you adjust the timeline and you look really weak, right? Because you promise people something different. Now, with a new leadership style, you correct the timeline and you look really good because people will say, yeah, they always told us that they would do that. And now they do it. So they follow through with it. And that's really the big difference. I think when we think about cultivating serendipity versus this illusion of control, that it's not about saying we give up our strategy. It's about saying, how do we have a strategy, make sure that that is what people rally around, but at the same time, also built in the idea that if unexpected information comes in, incentive to bring it in rather than to hide it, because that's actually what real leadership becomes in a fast-changing world. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah. Something's come up in several of the podcasts here. I'm thinking we interviewed a few futurists like Amy Webb and Faith Popcorn. Rita McGrath is a strategist, but also talks about this agile adaptive strategy is the idea of maybe not knowing what the timeline is, but knowing when these three things come to be, then that will imply that we should make some moves. So you have that predictability of a state, but we don't know when that's going to happen. So I guess in addition to the uncertainty of the timing of what's going to happen, you also have these unknown inputs as well, which gives another degree of flexibility. Yeah. And I think that's where it gets really exciting, right? When you think about after the third glass of red wine, what does the CEO tell you about how they really made the decision, right? In the board meeting, they might have said, I made that decision based on all the data and based on all the information. Da, da, da. Yeah, but maybe you just woke up in the morning, you had a gut feeling, and then you went with it, right? And so the point here is that a lot of times when you look at how people really make decisions, it's an informed gut feeling. They essentially say, okay, I have a certain gut feeling. Now I try to get as much information as I can. And then I double check my gut and then I'll go with it. I always found that fascinating. When you look at how people navigate gut feeling, right? I think there's this kind of naive gut feeling that is fight or flight. Like I'm afraid of something, so I do it or don't do it. And then there's this kind of mature gut feeling that's employed by a lot of those really interesting leaders that essentially say, how do we, at the end of the day, understand what that is? Is it just fear or is it actually informed by something that my subconscious knows that I might not be aware of yet? And I think that's how a lot of them make decisions. Yeah, I could see it at the very base level. We sense something and we respond positively or negatively to it. And if change triggers flight versus excitement, right, that's probably like the foundational moment. You use a term, I was wondering if you could talk about, it seems intriguing to me, casting hooks in your book. Can you just tell us what that is? Absolutely. That's really about the idea that we can also create meaningful accidents. And the idea here is to say, how do I see the couple of dots? How do I cast a couple of hooks that other people can connect the dots for me? So what do I mean with this? There's an amazing entrepreneur in London called Ollie Barrett. And if you would ask Ollie this dreaded, what do you do question that we get asked at every conference and every virtual meeting, whatever, what do you do? He wouldn't just say, I'm a technology entrepreneur or a 
chief strategy officer or you name it, he would say something like, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently started reading into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I recently started hosting piano sessions. You should stop by. Oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister's teaching on the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture. The point is I'm a big fan of doing a serendipity journal where you write down a little bit, what are a couple of themes I'm interested in? In my case, for example, how do I take serendipity mindset into different organizations and curricula? And then how do I seed those things into every conversation? I come late to a meeting. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I was just thinking how we get this and this into the curricula, but now I'm here. I'm so excited to be here. And so the point is we can then seed those dots into emails. We can see that into conversations. And it's amazing how the most unexpected leads, the most unexpected insights come from those kind of situations, especially with people with whom we usually communicate on autopilot, right? Team members and others. If we start seeding a lot of things, people might be like, oh my God, I didn't even know you'd do that. Let me connect you to my uncle who did exactly that. Right. Fascinating and super practical. Your book also, you have a series of questions, like 38 questions or something to score yourself on serendipity. Can you just give us a sense of what some of those questions are? So we've done a lot of research around what differentiates blind luck from serendipity. So serendipity really is smart luck that we can create ourselves and blind luck just being born into a loving family, things we can't really pick. And so the beautiful thing, once you look at serendipity, up to 50% of innovations and inventions from Viagra, penicillin, potato washing machines to how we find the love of our life and so on, it's always the same process. It's always the process of some unexpected serendipity trigger, right? So people using the washing machine differently, you bumping into someone at a conference, you name it, but then we have to do something with it. We have to connect the dots. We have to imbue meaning in this moment and then turn that into something. And so these earlier questions are really based on the idea, okay, how can we create more of those potential serendipity triggers? How do we create more potential dots? And so that's really questions around something like this. If you are in the supermarket, do you talk with someone or things that allow you to have more of those kind of things happen? Then the other one is really the one I'm very excited about because it's a lot about also those quote-unquote non-extrovert things. Like, how do I connect the dots differently? Like, when I see a problem, do I just see the problem or do I wonder why is that here? And by asking that simple question, I understand, oh my God, actually, it might not be the problem I think it was, but actually there's something underlying. And so those questions are a lot about, do I take things as face value or do I step back and try to understand what's really there? And then there's also a lot around that idea of, you know, when we think about serendipity in our own lives, both in terms of innovations and how we experience life, a lot of times there's a long incubation time, right? Between you might have run into someone five years ago at a conference and now your CEO asks you to come up with a new plan for how MasterCard can bring XYZ people into the financial system. And you're like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I met someone five years ago who could help us with this. And so that's the kind of thing where a lot of times also it has this kind of perseverance, grits, being able to keep in touch with people and so on. And so a couple of questions also around this, like how do you develop the tenacity to actually be able to turn something unexpected into a positive outcome? Love it. I have so many questions, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. So I'm going to give you two questions and you can choose which one. And then I'm going to ask you how people can follow you and learn from you and connect with you. What is something that most people get wrong or what is something that you've changed your mind about? I think what most people get wrong and I got that wrong. So I changed my mind about that too. I started out with this idea, you know, I grew up in Germany and we love planning. We love having things figured out. And so you think you can plan a lot. You think you can map it all out. And then you realize, wow, most people are just winging it most of the time. And I wished I had known that before because then all these unexpected things wouldn't give me anxiety to the degree that it used to give me. And one of the things that this work has done for me personally is it has decreased anxiety because once you realize, wow, there's not only one way to get to XYZ solution. There's not only one way to get XYZ career done. Then actually the unexpected 
expected becomes an ally rather than just a threat. And so that's really at the core of this. And I found it fascinating, Kahan. You know, when the book came out, I had psychologists reach out saying, Christian, I use this for my patients because it really helps them as a toolkit to reduce that anxiety. And I've seen that with myself. So that's what I'm really excited about, that idea that everyone's just winging it. And so, yes, we pretend so much, but actually we should give everyone just a break from time to time and legitimize that a little bit more to take off the pressure. Like we're all under a lot of pressure. Yeah especially now. Beautiful. So how can people follow you, learn from you, connect with you? What advice do you have for people? Yeah, the homepage is serendipitymindset.com. On Twitter, I'm at Chris Serendip and the Serendipity Mindset should be available everywhere where books are sold. Great. Thank you so much for being here, for the work that you do and for sharing it with us here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.